sutra. Um, so we can say that we've generated bodhicitta. And so I'll just add a, a chant invoking the lineage. Dorje Chang Chen Tili Naro Dong Marpa Mila Joje Gampopa Pagmo Drupa Galwa Drikungpa Kagyulama Namkitashi Shog. So tonight I want to share with you some of my favorite verses from uh, the Mahayana tradition by Shanti Deva. And Shanti Deva lived in the 600s. So he was in the, the mid-600s. And he's considered one of the greatest masters of Buddhism. So when you think of the Mahayana um, era, uh, in many ways he defines that era because the Bodhisattva vow stems from his particular verses. There are two strains of the Bodhisattva vow. One comes specifically from Shantideva. So the understanding of a bodhisattva, um, we're greatly indebted to him for his clarity um, regarding the bodhisattva's way of life. Um, If we were to look at the Metta Sutra that we recited tonight, and we went to the section, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Um, that could be considered um, a goal to strive for in practically any religious tradition. When we think of the Christian tradition and the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, um, it's a similar understanding of the ideal that we have as human beings. The problem is <laughs> it's hard to get to that ideal. And um, when we explore that difficulty, we have to realize that our mind is essentially a distinction-making machine. We calculate differences all the time. So this morning, my job was to sweep the leaves. I was uh, sweeping the leaves. And um, as I was sweeping the leaves... Um, I noticed that the driveway was cracked, so there were natural sweeping boundaries to collect into piles. And then there were some leaves that were more trouble than other leaves. They were going to cause trouble to the drains. So I watched my mind making distinctions about the leaves, grouping them into families, having distinct boundaries, describing some as more troublesome than others. And this is what our mind does continuously. I was just watching my mind judge some leaves as more trouble than others. So our minds do this quite naturally because our fundamental wisdom, our fundamental ignorance, is this dividing into self and others. Um, That is what is the root of all of our suffering. And we can see that it's the root of the incredible crisis of compassion that we have now in the world, where we don't see all beings as our child, our only child. Um, If we did see all beings as our child, our only child, we couldn't live with the Syrian refugees. We would be in Greece. We couldn't live with children walking out of the house and getting shot in Chicago. 
there would be an imperative if we were able to really see all beings as our child, our only child. So the magnificence of Shantideva is he takes us step by step by step to get from where we are to that incredible, wise, open heart. And he does it in such a way that's so very human um, and so exquisitely intelligent that it's, it's quite magnificent. So when, when we think of the meta verses um, and the meta training systems, which are very, very similar in all the traditions, we often think of them as an emotional practice. Um, and what Shanti Deva does is he takes us through compassion in a logical process. Um, and I find personally that balance of going back and forth between uh, the heart-centered emotional training and the um, step-by-step intellectual logic to be a really incredible balance. And uh, the other thing that's magnificent about Shantideva, um, in this book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, it's essentially him coaching himself. So if we think of the two pumpkins outside, it's not the saintlier one, it's more the grouchy one, that um, he's talking to himself and he's giving himself a hard time for not fitting into the ideal and trying to give himself a pep talk. So um, I get quite uh, a kick out of his sense of humor as well as his incredible intellect. So uh, in all the Mahayana monasteries, this text is studied, um, and it's studied in great detail, in great depth. And uh, these verses are from the concentration chapter. And uh, because we're recording it, I'll just say it's verse 90 on to the end of that chapter. Um, And I find that these are the verses I go back to over and over and over again because their logic is so profound and so beautiful, and I think if I keep studying them, that one day I'll actually get it. One day I'll actually be able to pull up that root of endurance. So um, we'll just talk about a few of these verses tonight, um, and I hope that you grow to love them as much as I love them. So uh, if we look at uh, the first verse on the page, strive at first to meditate on the sameness of yourself and others. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Thus be a guardian of all as of yourself. So that's the ideal. Be a guardian of all as yourself, like a mother with their only child. Do unto your neighbor as you would have done to yourself. Then the following verse starts to ask questions about that in a really beautiful way. The hand and other limbs are many but distinct, but all are one, one body to be kept and guarded. Likewise, different beings in all their joys and sorrows are like me, one in wanting happiness. So it starts to talk about, and he uses the body as a metaphor in a couple of different ways, that we think of ourselves as having parts, very distinct parts, um, but they're one body. And in the same way, we all have the sorrows of samsara, we all have the, the happiness that we experience, and we're alike in the joy and the happiness. 
we are all alike, one in wanting happiness. My pain, in fact, does not afflict or cause discomfort to another body. Through clinging to my I, this suffering is mine, and being mine, very hard to bear. So even though we're all one in joy and suffering, if someone dear to me dies, I have a great grief. If someone dear to you dies, you have a great grief. But by clinging to the I, I suffer my grief, not your grief, right? Because it's, it's about me. And other beings' pain I do not feel, and yet because I take them for my own, their suffering is likewise hard to bear. If we take other beings as ourself, then their pain as well would be hard to bear. And we see that in our family. If your sister, your mother, your father was suffering, their pain would be hard to bear even though it doesn't cause you a physical discomfort, right? And therefore, I'll dispel the pain of others for it is simply pain just like my own. And others I will aid and benefit for they are living beings just like me. Since I and other beings both in wanting happiness are equal and alike, what difference is there to distinguish me that I should strive to have my bliss alone? Since pains of others do no harm to me, what reason do I have to shield myself? But why to guard against my future pain, which does no harm to present me? This, gets, this is where things start to get um, really interesting. First of all, if we're the same in all wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, what is special about me that I should guard against my suffering or want my happiness and not want your happiness and you to be free of something? What is there so di- distinctive and s- special about this entity? So this is where he starts talking to himself. He goes, well, (laughs) your pain doesn't harm me, so why should I care about it, right? Um, And then he counters that with saying, well, why do we guard and shield ourselves from future pain? Because that's not harming us right now. Your pain is not harming me right now. My future pain isn't actually harming me right now. But I will, boy, you know, the minute you get your first job, you start your Social Security and your retirement fund to guard against future pain. (laughs) We're always doing things to guard against our future pain, even though it's not right now hurting us. So how is it that your pain, which is not right now harming, harming me, is not also to be guarded? I just love him. And I apologize for the typos. I was typing this out today so that you could have the verses to take. (laughs) It is for the sufferer himself, it's your problem, (laughs) to shield himself from injuries that come. So this this is really great. 
your pain is your problem, it's your job to take care of it. But then he counters it with, the pain felt in my foot is not the hands, so why in fact does one protect the other? We're talking about the body having different parts. We, this is the hand, right? It's not the foot. It doesn't have anything to do with the foot. The foot doesn't belong to the hand. The hand doesn't belong to the foot. But if we stub our toe, we immediately, the hand goes to the foot. So this body we divide into parts. They're distinct and separate. At the same time, we act as one whole immediately when there's pain. I, I hope you get his sense of humor. The sting of pity aggravates, you say, the pain already felt, so why engender it? But can the sting of pity be compared to all that other beings have to suffer? So we might say, if I took upon myself the pain of the migrants, that would be hard to bear. I would have an overload. I would get burned out. And he, and he counters that. But that can that be compared to what those beings are feeling? You know, the fear you have of opening your heart and being overwhelmed, what does that compare to, you know, the mother on the raft in the cold with her children? And if through such a single pain a multitude of sorrows can be remedied, such a pain as this, a loving being strives to foster in himself and others. So that sense of, if through the small pain of compassion or the small pain of um, empathy for the difficulties we see you know, all around the world, if that um, can help in any way uh, because it would spur you to action, why, as a loving being, would you not cultivate that compassion and empathy? Because the multitude of sorrows that it could affect. <clears throat> then he goes into how we create the I that we're so uh, protective of. And how... Um, it's a matter of habit, essentially. Although the drop of sperm and blood is alien and in itself devoid of entity, yet because of strong habituation, I recognize and claim it as my eye. So if we think biologically, you have the sperm and you have the egg. That's not you. That's your mother. That's your father. There's no I there. There's no entity there. They're alien to you. Then the second they come together, you start associating that with an I. You know, if we think of, was there an I at the moment of birth? Was there an I before birth? We can't identify how that I came because it is a habit of thought put upon those two alien substances when they come together. Now he gets really tricky. <clears throat> Why then not identify another body calling it my eye? And vice versa. 
Why should it not be hard to think of my body as another's? So when we're thinking about habituation and what our eye is, think about the boundaries that we create. There's a sense of, in terms of me and my, you might say your mother and father are close to you as the me and my. Maybe your aunts and uncles. Maybe your cousins. We each have some way of defining where is the imperative of me and my and where we let go somebody else's problem. It's totally arbitrary. There's a habit of thinking that's not different from that alien sperm and egg coming together. It's the habituation. In my family, my parents didn't cultivate a big family. So when I think of who would I get on a plane for, it's a very limited number of people in terms of my family. I have a friend who cultivated a huge family. She is always on a plane. She has so many cousins and children of the cousins that no one can keep track. But she has defined that I in terms of the imperative to help as a, as a habituation is much, much larger. There is nothing um, that, that is um, essentially any inherent substance to that I, that me and my. It's an habituation that we mentally calculate. If you think of somebody adopting a child, the child is not theirs, then the child is their child. Most of us have the experience of getting an animal, a dog or a cat. It's not ours, then it's this precious <laughs> puppy that has to have all its shots. The day before, it was one of a million dogs in a pound. All of a sudden, it's me and my. So it's a mental habituation of where our compassion boundary is. And it's only the habituation that keeps it limited. Hands and limbs are thought of as the members of a body. Shall we not consider others likewise limbs and members of a living whole? Yeah. Is that gorgeous? And then for ecology in this precious place here, just as the body which has many parts owing to its division into arms and so forth, should be protected as a whole. So should this entire world, which is differentiated and yet has the nature of the same suffering and happiness. So he brings it back to that original logic of the limbs of the body. We have distinctions that we make, and then we have a mental habituation of making that set of distinctions, me and my. Why not expend that to the living whole, incorporating all sentient beings in the planet? It's a mental habituation. Then he ends with uh, the extraordinary dedications um, that... Um, you often hear the Dalai Lama quoting as his favorite verse. 
taking it not only to the present of the distinctions being expanded to a living whole, but as long as time and space exist, as long as there are beings to be found, so too shall I remain to assuage the sufferings of the world. So, limitless. The Brahma-vihara is limitless. So, um, this is just a short uh, talk tonight, uh, introducing you to Shantideva, because he's so exquisite. And uh, um, I encourage you to explore um, his guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, particularly because this uh, Metta Sutra that we all so love and adore, um, he breaks it down piece by piece, each section, um, showing um, in each aspect how to work with our very human, vulnerable minds filled with many foibles and clashes to get from the grouchy curmudgeon to... (laughs) the gorgeous, loving bodhisattva that is our potential. Are there any thoughts or questions? You use a phrase something like this is our compassion boundary. Is that what you said? So it's like we, we meet the, the edges of our compassion. It's like, goes that far <coughs> any further? Can you can you give some advice on how to how to keep going when you meet that edge? That's where I like the combination of the meta practice and yours is very much like the Drikung lineage one. Uh, my understanding combined with this logical one. So um, let's say you're doing the meta meditation and you're expanding to friends, enemies, and neutrals and you hit up against a problem person. Um, Then um, you can go back to some of the logical things to unwind the obstacle to loving that person and extending your full compassion to that so person. A bit more about like, you, know, <laughs> like you look at what it is about them that, that gets you, makes your heart close. Or... Yes, yes. He has a whole chop- chapter on patience um, that unravels uh, the distinction of enemies. Um, and again, in a step-by-step logical way. So um, it's extremely, extremely helpful. Um, and um, I think um, I think it's um, a very real fear that people have, certainly when they're doing some of the trainings, that if they open their hearts, they won't be able to function, or they'll be in some sort of overload. You know that you couldn't love every single refugee. You know when when you see thousands and millions of people in such great need. So then remembering. Um, some of the verses that we worked with tonight um, in terms of um, 
first uprooting our mental view. And after uprooting our mental view, that then would lead to action in the future. Maybe Tongland you know, would be a good practice also, isn't it, to work with that compassion boundary? Yes. So within this chapter in concentration, there are two main trainings. One is Tonglin and one is equalizing self and other. And I use the verses tonight from equalizing self and others. And those are um, two of the techniques that we used most. How is that done, this equalizing self and others? Um, these were the verses um, in terms of seeing... Um, seeing... Uh, since I and others both in wanting happiness are equal and alike, what differences there distinguish us, that I should strive to have my bliss alone. Some of these verses lead up to it. And then um, some of the things that are very interesting as the chapter progresses, as he talks about exchanging bodies with something with someone else, so that you're looking at yourself from the perspective of someone else and going back and forth like that. So he has... He has It's dense in terms of the techniques that are introduced in his classic text. Mm-hmm. We have the book. I have the book. <coughs> that one. Yes, it's a very good book. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that uh, this all happened yeah. in the year 600, you know, where there was that much information to be experiencing and gathering information out there to have all that stuff there. And it really has never changed. Human beings and the minds of human beings still have the same. I mean, now we have we would think have more of it, but yet he's saying that was it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was the entirety mm-hmm. that he explored, and it's the same thing we have today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To plug with. Yes. I wanted to say to her sister Nanda Bodhi that. Um, whatever limited compassion I managed to get into my life and keep trying to you know, I go into overload I have struggled with overload a great deal um, and I found that applying some of that logic you were speaking about and for me that the logic gets applied when I look at that person and I say what's possible here mm-hmm. what can be achieved mm-hmm even if it's just a smile. I mean, the feeling I have toward that person can be beautiful and unlimited, but what's possible in the interaction? Because I I lose my patience when I see all the possibility, and I can only function with that much. Mm -hmm. And then I want to push. And so I want to say, oh, look, what could be, you know, can't we... And, and then I've, I've lost my patience and I'm in anger and I'm, I'm you know, basically in the soup, you know. Yeah. And, and if I just look and say, what I, you know, what's the one thing I can do here? And then the rest of me kind of calms down and goes, okay, well, that's where we are right now. Mm. Um, and, and, and it helps me to function mm-hmm. that way. Because I get... A little fiery. <laughs> she's also got this magic bowl out there with all these words in it, so, so she'll come through the house frustrated, and she'll go to the bowl and pull it out and says, patience. <laughs> yes, you did. Oh. 
yesterday. That's the first time I ever got patients of the book. But yesterday, I, I was tutoring, and I was struggling. I was telling Sister Jati I was struggling with the Skype, which was going all crazy. And I had two students, and they were they were just so upset. And and I came through to get something from my office, and I said to Jim. I'm struggling learning patience right now. And I reached in the bowl. <laughs> and she said, well, you're getting on track, aren't you? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I try to apply that little logic that it helps me. Well, there's always help out there. <laughs> always, yeah. striking on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. Like I first encountered it when I was travelling in India mm -hmm. 12 years ago. It was mm -hmm. a significant kind of life-changing trip for me. And just, um, still verses from that book will sometimes kind of pop up in my mind. And, and mm -hmm. really, um, yes. Yeah, powerful, kind of crystal clear teaching. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice to have it coming in, in to this shrine. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the the patient chapter for difficult times is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So if all fear, injury, and pain arise from grasping of the self, then what use is that great ghost to me? Yes. <laughs> yeah. He gives himself a, a really... Yeah. Vigorous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to defeat you, you en enemy. <laughs> Counsel. <laughs> Lifetimes you've tortured me. Ego, I'm going to get you. <laughs> yeah. But this, this particular group with the why does the hand protect the foot when the foot doesn't belong to the hand? I love particularly. Oh, good example, yeah. So I know we all have to be up at five. So you know what I particularly like is here you made a lovely type the long instead of loving being you say the long being <laughs> <laughs> the typos. <laughs> it auto corrects as you're typing. Such a pain as this a long being. <laughs> I apologize for the typos. <laughs> because when I printed it out, you know, I, I, I changed a few little things. Uh, but this <laughs> one I didn't see. <laughs> so, um, uh, this is the classic uh, Tibetan dedication um, that uh, mind uh, we, we call bodhicitta. So, bodhicitta, excellent and precious mind. Where it is unborn, may it arise. Where it is born, may it not decline, but ever increase higher and higher. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.